Have you ever heard the expression, there's no there there? Well, let's ask the question, is there there there? That's our podcast from the full-service digital storytelling agency, Graphic Machine. I'm Matt Staub. I'm a partner here at Graphic Machine, here with the other two partners of Graphic Machine, Patience Jones. Hello. And Brian Jones. Hello. Hello. This week, episode 57, the Why Not Edition. We give ourselves a lot of reasons why we shouldn't do things in business and in life. Sometimes they're legitimate, sometimes they're excuses. What's the difference and how do we evaluate whether there's actually there there in the reason that we decide not to pursue something? It's pretty easy to find examples of where companies or people didn't do something a, because they were afraid of it or they didn't want to expend the effort or they were uncertain of what would happen. But let's start by exploring, are there examples of times when companies did take a step that was bold and daring, and it turned out to be the wrong thing, and maybe they should have found an excuse not to. The obvious one is the one that gets trotted out every time that somebody thinks New Coke. About, exactly. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I was thinking too. Like, that was so spectacular and left such an indelible mark in the marketing world, for sure, that it often is the reason why you don't do something, especially for something that is a profitable product. And that's always the risk when you are looking at something that's working just fine, and if you don't mess with it, then maybe it'll just keep being fine. And there's a huge risk in messing with it because then maybe you lose it being fine, but you also can just watch it slowly die. What are ways to start thinking about all of these different factors and how much risk you're willing to take? If you have a product and it's something that's already in the market, looking at are the people that are buying your product, is the demographics of that changing? Or the things that they value most in life, has that changed? Because that may impact whether or not you decide to do or not do something. But often it's a gut instinct. And I think it's knowing your own brand. It's knowing who you are as a company that often drives the decision to do or not to do something. And then I think you have to find the data to back it up. I'm a big list maker. And I recommend making a list of all of the good things that could come out of your decision to do this thing and all the bad things that could come out of the decision to do this. And then looking at them realistically with the likelihood that both the good things and the bad things have of happening. And because it's really easy for us to get in our own heads and kind of only see what's around us, to do that exercise with somebody outside of the group that's going to be impacted by the decision. So if that's somebody outside of your company or somebody outside of your family or whatever it is, as kind of a reality check on the likelihood percentages. So with the old pros and cons list, which is always a great approach to take a holistic view, should we, knowing that we are biased and probably have an inclination to not take risks, depending on your personality, perhaps, should we bias that pros and cons list a little bit towards the pros side, knowing that we'll probably overvalue the cons and is a reason, and that was a way to distinguish between reasons and excuses? Possibly, but I also think you have to show that list to somebody, to patients at this point, that's outside of your sphere, because they may say, well, that con is really real, and this one is really made up. That's what you may not be able to differentiate on the inside of something. I also think sometimes our language on the inside of a company or the inside of our own person may not be clearly articulated to the outside world, and it may be extracting that which we aren't clearly communicating that is keeping us from doing something. Also collecting data from external sources. If, for example, what you're thinking about doing is launching a new product and you have this gut feeling that there's a demand in the market for the product, there are certainly instances of that throughout history where that gut feeling turned out to be right. But that's not always the case. So go with your gut feeling, but maybe do a little research and look at, is the data showing that there's a demand for this in the market? Is the data showing that 
there's a demand for something else that's not quite what I'm thinking of, and this is my plan to kind of divert the demand. Know what the situation is. Don't just put on blinders. And momentum can be a dangerous thing. That's why you see these big companies that become comfortable and they have cash cows and they have this huge apparatus that's hard to move and hard to change. And then there's all the more reasons and impediments to change and they just slowly die. I don't know of examples really of where giant companies that were really tied to cash cows that were able to reinvent themselves. So if you look at industries that are sort of become obsolete, like traditional photography, like Polaroid at CES, they're hilarious in their product category. They're just too slow to adapt. And, well, they're trying to throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And they didn't take that risk until their cash cows were dead and rotting out in the field, you know? What do you think it looks like, though, on a day-to-day basis at a personal level or a company level? What do these excuses look like? Because I think sometimes we take the stance that maybe it's obvious, but I actually think it's far more insidious. What do you think it looks like on a day-to-day basis? It looks different depending on the nature of the company and the culture of the company, but I think it can manifest itself in everything from people just saying, oh, that's too hard. I wouldn't be able to do that. That's not within my job scope. That takes too much time. It takes too much money to people not showing up for work, people asking for transfers to other departments so that they don't have to participate in whatever the change is. And at the company leadership level, things like not listening to customer feedback, not listening to employee feedback, because it's too much work or it's too much time. I mean, I look at Comcast as like a really great example of facing this conundrum in the marketplace right now because they have a horrible customer service history. They've written terrible things to their customers. They're notoriously awful to people on the phone and they need to change. They need to be better because there are many other services coming onto the market that are going to make them obsolete. Can they be different? Patience was very tactical on a team level, but in large organizations, to kind of extend that idea, the incentives just aren't aligned to innovate. The upside of taking a big risk and failing, you know, there are a lot of companies that say we want to reward failure because we want to reward risk-taking, but there's not many people that do that well, really, Mm -hmm. truly. In a large organization, if you just sit and execute what you're expected to and everything's working fine and, you know, have another quarter of 0.0% growth, that's fine then what's your incentive to go and take a big swing? It's virtually nothing because it's all downside. You fail and it reflects poorly on you. I think that culturally we have a long way to go to incentivize actually taking change. And then all the things the patient said, it's scary, it's difficult. There's a lot of unknowns that with human nature, we tend to focus on the one roadblock instead of all the possibilities, which you know, when we get to the roadblock, we figured it out. I think there's all these human nature reasons that we try to stay comfortable as well as we institutionalize those biases into the way we build our organizations too. Do you think that there's something in the way that you approach a problem? Because I think this is a natural course of humanity is to say, whoa, 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 I want to wait. Let's see what's going to happen here. This is working. Even though you know instinctively that maybe you're losing market share, maybe your product isn't selling or, or your service isn't as popular as it once was, Despite all that reality, there's still that resistance sometimes. And do you think that it's because the known failure is perceived as better than the unknown failure? At least you can predict your death as opposed to sort of knowing an uncertain death. Do you think that's part of it? You mean kind of like if this cash cow eventually withers and dies, that's expected. But if we try to reinvent this cash cow and kill it now, 
We, is that worse? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's either pulling the trigger or it's death by omission instead of commission. I'm not sure that people who are thinking along those lines think of it, though, as the certain known death. I think they think of it as continued success in stasis. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily see, okay, that 0.0% growth at some point is going to drop into negative numbers. Yeah. In their vision, you just stay flat for all eternity and you keep cashing your paychecks and you keep coming to work and then you die and that's that. <laughs> yeah. And I think and it's stable and comfortable. Yeah. And nothing great was ever built by people that find that appealing. It's the old duck chairs on the Titanic metaphor, right? You're in a dying industry and you think, well, if we just adjust this and change a little bit and just move tiny levers to make you feel like you're doing something, you know, I've been in industries that were shrinking I won't mention them by name, but let's just say retail tax services are not growing. (laughs) All these little things like we're going to add coffee to our retail stores. Well, coffee may attract a few additional customers as the ship is sinking. It's a changing marketplace and you have to take big risks and that's all endemic in this. JCPenney is a perfect example of that in the last decade of trying something big. I think they tried it at the wrong time, but they did try something big and they totally revamped their pricing structure where they weren't going to offer sales anymore. And this was a big move in a retail industry and especially a store chain that historically had been all about the sales and the discounts. People did not respond well to it. I think largely because, again, it was at the wrong time. If they had tried it three years even later, it would have done really, really well. But it's an example of one where they tried a big risk and it didn't necessarily pay off. Either they didn't give it enough time to work or it just wasn't a good fit for their audience. And it was such a huge shift that they almost needed to double, triple, quadruple down on it and even go more nuts with their communication and making it clear to customers. I think you're right. It was a weird timing and they just didn't quite get all the way over the line. But the thing that I think is important to remember too is that JCPenney still exists. So yeah, they did this huge sea change. It didn't work. The leadership that was in charge is now out. But JCPenney's are still open. They still employ people. They're still doing tons of sales. So even in the worst model of what is this going to do to the store, they're just fine. And what they also have are a bunch of other product lines carried in the store that they wouldn't have had had they not gone that route. That's fair. You swing over and then maybe you come back and the the coming back isn't all the way back to where you were. It's maybe 10% beyond where you were initially. So the big move did have an impact. So Mm -hmm. my last question on this topic, it seems to me that there's some benefit in this sort of human intransigence that it's part of our built-in innovation cycle because every company that becomes established becomes stubborn and it creates this innovation cycle where people get stuck and then somebody has to come in and we haven't said the word disrupt in like seven or eight episodes. At least. (laughs) And we had a buzzword episode and we didn't even drop it in there. Uh, Yeah, that's too bad. Well, somebody's going to come in and disrupt it because necessarily that's the cycle of business. It is an inefficiency because it's blowing things up and rebuilding them. But is that kind of the beauty of the way human bias has built into this sort of innovation cycle? We look at the boom and bust cycle of lots of industries. There's an attention paid to a thing for a period of time. It gets heightened, it expands, it explodes, but it doesn't explode back to zero usually. It explodes back to like 30%. So there's still 30% growth even after the larger bubble has popped. But I would challenge it that even if you are in an organization that hasn't historically been innovating, you owe it to yourself to try and move that 
forward. Without it, you will die. But there are lots of different ways to innovate and don't make the mistake of manufacturing an innovation cycle or manufacturing something that you really don't feel passionate about innovating. So coming in and just deciding, you know what, we're stale, we're just going to innovate. That's crazy talk and you'll make bad decisions and it's not well thought out. Think about all the different areas of your business. How can you improve the company culture? How can you improve your sales cycle? How can you improve your communications with your customers? Those are discrete areas where you can identify specific things to do to begin innovating and maybe change your overall approach toward innovation to make it a more organic part of your company. But if you're one of those totally flat stasis people or companies, don't put yourself through the, you know, tomorrow we're going to be the biggest innovator ever. We're going to be innovating left and right because that's just crazy. The big companies that have a lot of cash and a lot of talent and a lot of incumbency in the markets have huge advantages and that's a huge opportunity. But their stubbornness and their slowness to change is really the only opportunity and advantage that a small disruptor has that you can actually identify that and you can not let those roadblocks be your roadblocks and really kind of drive around them. And I think it's the last vestige of the David and Goliath modern economy, these organizational dysfunctions getting in the way of the large players and giving openings to the small disruptors that may want to be flexible and agile enough. I think there's lots more advantages than that. Well, sure. Right. But I think that's symbolic of all the things that give you, you know, your And I think to your point, it's not so much just because a large company hasn't done something doesn't mean there's an, a natural reason not to do it. Right. And to your point, it may be their scale that's keeping them from being able to move efficiently into that space. All right, we're going to efficiently move into our next segment of the show. That's called the Out There's and There There's. Out There's are things we found out on the internet or you guys shared with us. We thought were cool and we'll share with you. There There's are condolences. We're sharing with something, some phenomenon, some market mover, some big company that took a risk and failed. Ha <laughs> ha. Brian, let's start with you this week and you're out there or there there. My out there is to a new add-on that Google is testing right now called Google Tone. And what it does is allows people that are adjacent to you at your browser to share content with you by speaking it. Because they found that while it's easy to share content with people that are across the world from you through social media and through other channels, it's actually quite difficult to share it while you're next to somebody. And we've seen this a lot in terms of the failing of the QR code and how that never really quite reach the critical mass. And there isn't a great way when you're on about to do this. So I think that's an interesting thing that they've added to their suite. How does it work? So you're looking at a link on your phone and you're like, hey, Brian, you should check out this link. And you just say link 5B45 out loud and your phone picks it up? Correct. Wow. So it's pretty That's cool. amazing. So yeah. is this better than a text message? I guess it's a little less friction. It's sort of inclined to point to how we're using technology, which is that even when you're in person with somebody, you still have a piece of technology probably in your hands That's or on true. your arm. So we're augmenting our reality. It's kind of that, that moment where sense. you're sitting around watching YouTube videos with your friends and you're like, here, give it to me. I'm going to show you something. And you slide the laptop over mm-hmm. and you type in the thing and you're like, check this one out. And right. And now it can be a much more fluid process, yeah. which is actually kind of cool. That's really cool. How long do you think ballpark before instead of saying the link, you could say like, hey, have you seen that video of the cat playing piano 
I think that's we're probably, kind of already we're close. I would there, say yeah. a year out from cool. now, I would say that's our norm. That's cool. And then it just starts playing. Mm-hmm. Or it says, yes, he has seen it. Mm-hmm. You could <laughs> exactly. also totally <laughs> yeah. sabotage someone by like forcing porn up on their computer at well, work. Exactly. I was thinking about all the nefarious ways you could use this in a movie theater in a, you know, anyway. It's like <laughs> the, the next generation Rickroll is uh, <laughs> never going to give you a patience. Besides my singing, what is your outfit? <laughs> so this is a there there. Russia is now threatening, once again, they've done this in the past, but they're threatening to ban Google, Twitter, and Facebook because they're saying that they are violating 2014 rules that Russia enacted prohibiting any social media site from encouraging public demonstrations, riots, extremist activities, and also having to identify with real names all bloggers and anybody who posts content. And bloggers have to register with the state in Russia. So these sites are not doing this. Google actually moved servers over to Russia earlier this year because Russia enacted a law saying that any personal data that was stored had to be stored on Russian soil. So Google has these servers there now, but Russia's saying, well, that's not enough. You have to take down all of this content. You have to police constantly for anybody calling for any kind of social action, take it down, and you have to tell us who's blogging. So that's really bad. I mean, that's an understatement. But something that I like to do sometimes is to go to the source of the place that is doing the thing. I pulled up Pravda, which is the Russian newspaper that's available in English, and I just searched on Pravda for Facebook to see if they were talking about this at all. And what's really interesting are the headlines about Facebook from the past handful of years that Pravda has run. Facebook helps sell stolen items. Facebook censors Pravda. Young woman arrested for posting selfie with a gun on Facebook. Facebook is the greatest spy vehicle ever created. Head of Facebook Russia against Facebook. It's just fascinating. It is fascinating to see how Russia portrays social media sites. And the same thing is true of Twitter and Google. That so that is state-owned media? Is mm-hmm. that... They, they don't like Facebook because it's a way that people have been organizing to protest the government. People have opinions and they get to share them and it's so annoying. Yes, and we do not like that. Yeah. We were tolerant of it up until people started... Using it. Using it to <laughs> argue with us and now yeah. we don't like it. Well, I just use Facebook to post about how handsome Vladimir Putin looks without a shirt on on the back of his white stallion. There's probably a spot for you. Yeah, I think that that would be allowed. I think that they would. That's probably encouraged. Yes. Oh, Vlad. So dreamy. So dictatory. So leave it to patience. She's reading the Russian newspapers. (laughs) Of course. Of course she is. Disclaimer, that's an English translation. Who knows what it really says in Cyrillic? I don't. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. A little rusty. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Change. So mine is some condolences to how hard it is to really understand demographic research. There was a whole bunch of news articles in the last couple of weeks kind of spawning off of one Bloomberg news article about how all the things we thought were true about the millennial generation were false and that they really love their cars in the suburbs, just like everyone else. Because as most of you probably know, if you listen to the podcast, millennials, you know, the younger emergent generation is different. They like cities and they like to use transit and they like to live more densely. And they have all these just different 
generational things that distance them from the traditional American dream paradigm. But all the news in the last few weeks has basically said, well, that was all crap. And the millennials are buying more cars and houses than anyone else as a proportion of new home sales and new car sales. What they didn't really account for in reporting that is proportionality. First of all, the millennial generation is now the largest generation alive in the United States today. And then also timing. This generation is now reaching the life milestones where these things happen. So they're the most in the market for this. So absent adjusting for proportion, just saying, oh, they're buying more cars than Gen X is. Well, Gen X is a tiny generation, relatively speaking. Basic statistical analysis to understand, you know, kind of a per capita basis for these things. A couple of the outlets that reported on this sort of issued a mea culpa and said, well, all right, well, we didn't really think about this. There's a popular car publication, which I'll post a link to that first said, millennials love their cars more than any generation. And then they're like, well, we kind of forgot to account for the fact that there's just a lot more of them. So that's why they're buying more. So, you know, it's just really fundamental stuff. And it smelled funny when you read it in the first place. But let's just remember how math works before we start going crazy on reporting uh, assumptions with huge implications for the way we market, for the way that we understand our people and our society. Obviously, people were interested in saying that, hey, consumerism is alive and well, but it's not quite so simple. That's why I love data. You can look at it any way you want. I mean, yes, there are some ineffable truths, but you also can apply filters to it. You can do all manner of things to get to the point that you're trying to make. And if you don't show your work, it's pretty easy to distort it, as this would say. You know, well, they, on a real numbers basis, they bought more than anyone else. So, yep, factually true. Yeah, that is that <laughs> yep. is true. What does that mean? Well, I I don't think it means what you think it means, but whatever. Be careful with your assumptions. I guess is the takeaway there. When you assume, dot dot dot. Well, you we know would, that phrase. Yeah. You well, make an ass out of you and me. Well, we're going to stop making an ass of ourselves by ending this show. That was episode 57. Great segue, by the way. For all the stuff we talked about on the show today, you can check out our show page, graphicmachine.com slash ITTT. That's also where you can find the previous 56 episodes. If you got a lot of spare time on your hands, you just listen to them straight through. If you do that, I will buy you a sandwich. You can also check out a Facebook thread that we post for every show. If you want to come and discuss what we talked about, we'll join you there. That would be awesome. Facebook.com slash Graphic Machine Inc. is where you can find that. You can also find us on Twitter. At Graphic Machine is our agency. And at their podcast is this show. Send us an email with your thoughts, questions, ideas. ITTT at GraphicMachine.com. And in the meantime, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.